I mean, I don't know if anybody's ever going to listen to it, but it was fun. Welcome to Crime News Insider, presented by the San Diego Deputy DA's Association. We are real prosecutors with decades of experience and are here to give you our inside take on the latest crime news. Here are your hosts, Deputy DA's Lori Hoff and Jorge Delbertillo. Today's episode, we're going to talk about hate crimes, what it is and how to prove it. Uh, This comes on the heels of a new report that was just published yesterday I saw in the USA Today. Uh, There was a 164% increase in anti-Asian hate crimes reports to the police in the first quarter of 2021 across 16 major cities and jurisdictions. This is according to a Cal State University San Bernardino report. And this comes on the heels too of uh, just on Tuesday, someone was, uh, two people were stabbed in an unprovoked attack in San Francisco. And then over the weekend, two Asian women were attacked in New York City. Lori, just a month ago, there was a public safety symposium hosted here in San Diego. Yeah, there was. And it, it, it brought together a bunch of different agencies. Our office was involved, the DA's office with, with Summer Stephan, our DA, and San Diego Police was there, San Diego City Council, the mayor, Todd Gloria, our very own Leonard Trin, who's with us today, was there. Um, who we're going to speak with in a minute. You know, it was. It, it seemed to be good. It, it provided some pretty practical tips on reporting violence especially amongst the Asian American community and, you know, really called on people to, if you see something, say something, number one, and that tips are so important because oftentimes, you know, we don't have a video, for example, we need people to come forward in these types of cases to report what they've seen or what has happened to them specifically. And I saw that uh, DA Summer 7 said that there was 120 tips on hate incidents that were reported and we've filed three felony charges in different or three different cases related to that. And like you said, uh, with us to talk about hate crimes is our very own hate crimes unit deputy district attorney, Leonard Trin. Leonard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So tell us about yourself, uh, introduce yourself to the audience, people that might not know you, where did you grow up uh, and how'd you become a prosecutor? Uh, I grew up in a small uh, town in Southwest Washington um, called Longview, Washington. Uh, it's about an hour north of Portland, Oregon. Pretty small town, maybe 40,000 people total. I didn't always want to be a prosecutor. I went to college thinking that I would be a doctor. Um, but my parents gr- growing up always said that I argued with them so much and so well that I was probably better suited to be a lawyer than a doctor. <laughs> so, that, so that's why I ended up in law school. As far as uh, being a prosecutor, um, I my, at the end of my first year in law school, uh, went to career services and knew I wanted to do criminal law. They asked me if I wanted to go to the PD's office or the DA's office, and it really was kind of one of those flip of the coin things for me. And I, for whatever reason, said DA, and I've never looked back. So, where did you go to law school? At Cal Western. Cal Western, down here in San Diego. That's, that's where correct. I went as well. Uh, nice. So you go to college, you go to law school, and that's when you decide 
the flip of the coin, you want to be a prosecutor. Pretty much. <laughs> All right. So Cal Western is here in San Diego. So did you apply to be an intern or a law clerk for San Diego? Yeah, I, I interned uh, in the San Diego DA's office first in the juvenile division. And then the second summer, I interned in the Superior Court Division. They didn't have graduate law clerks way back when I was in law school. <laughs> and so uh, I, my first job actually that I took out of, out of law school was at the Orange County DA's office. And then as soon as San Diego hired, I came back down here. What, what year did you get hired here in San Diego? In 2006. So I have a question, Leonard. Maybe I'm, I'm delving a little too deep too soon, but my, my question for you is your, your background growing up in a small town in Washington and then coming to down to San Diego, did you... Did you experience racism or discrimination on the basis of race as you were growing up or at some point along the way? And has that affected you as you prosecute these types of cases now? Yeah, the, the, the town that I grew up in wasn't particularly diverse. There, there were a handful of Asian families that were in Longview. And growing up, you know, my dad and my mom, they both came to the United States from, uh, from Vietnam at the end of the war. And they sort of struggled with how to raise us as kids. They really wanted us to blend in as much as possible. But at the same time, they still wanted us to remember our heritage and uh, recognize the culture that, that they grew up in. So as a result of that, they you know, really encouraged us to speak English in the home so that they could learn English. Our home was decked out with a, a lot of you know, Asian-type decorations, which made our house stand out mm-hmm. uh, in our neighborhood. And there was a neighbor who didn't like the way that our house looked different than mm-hmm. every other house, literally up and down the street. And so he argued with my dad uh, on multiple occasions about how our house looked different. And, you know, we saw that as kids and, you know, my dad trying to kind of defend the fact that he wanted to, you know, display his culture was, was, you know, difficult for us as a nine, 10, 11 year old kid. Right. But, but one day we woke up and we saw that, you know, our house had been vandalized uh, essentially. And, it just had a really profound effect on my family. My dad just became this really overprotective father, mm-hmm. uh, wouldn't let us you know, walk near this neighbor's house. And my mom kind of retreated to, to the small Asian community that was in Longview. Uh, and as a result, her English didn't develop as well as my dad's did. Mm. Uh, so it had an effect. Yeah. And I think when, when the hate crimes position opened up in our office, it made me just kind of realize that I, I'm aware of the the ramifications and the impact that it can have on victims. And it made me really want to, to, to take that role. It probably is a bigger ripple effect than you realize, you know, even as a kid and how deep that runs can extend for a long time. Yeah, it definitely does. Uh, I, I think it gives me a little bit of an understanding of how hate crimes victims now feel when they're targeted because of their race or ethnicity or religion, because that's not something that you can change about yourself. And so kind of being able to understand where they're coming from when they try to explain the fear, the potential retaliation for coming forward, that, that, that they're fearful for reporting it, it gives me a sensitivity to those issues. And so I think it, it, it helps uh, that I, I know where they're coming from. Can you explain to us a little bit more for those who aren't familiar with the hate crimes unit, what it what it is, what it does, um, and what you do as a prosecutor within it? Yeah, so there's a, a whole bunch of different functions that, that we do in the DA's office. Obviously, when a hate crime is committed, uh, our office prosecutes that from beginning to end. And, and in San Diego, we, we prosecute the bulk of the hate crimes that occur within our county. 
there's an educational component that we do as well. Uh, we do teach law enforcement uh, on, a, on a very regular basis on how to recognize hate crimes and how to conduct those investigations. We teach dispatchers, so police dispatchers who oftentimes are the first contact with victims. We teach them as well uh, the right questions to ask when it is a hate crime so that we can get that in an audio recording and preserve it potentially for trial. But then we also teach the community. We do a, a fair amount of outreach with the community uh, and particularly the, the last you know, 14, 15 months, we've reached out a lot to the API community because they seem to be targeted uh, ever since the start of the pandemic. And so we teach them on you know, recognizing when they are the victim of a hate crime, how to report it, uh, what to do when they're a witness to hate speech or a hate crime. So we do a lot of that as well, just because hate crimes do tend to be underreported for a whole host of reasons. And it's important to get that information out that we can't do anything about it unless it is reported. Walk us through how you go about proving a hate crime and what is a hate crime and how is it different than hate speech? Yeah, so a hate crime is a crime that's motivated in whole or in part because of the victim's race, ethnicity, nationality, their sexual orientation, their religion, their gender or gender identity, or disability. And that disability can be a physical disability, a mental disability, a permanent or a temporary disability. So what distinguishes a hate crime from hate speech is that the First Amendment protects hate speech. You're allowed to say hateful things about people based on their religion or their race or their sexual orientation, all of those characteristics that I mentioned before. But if you threaten violence against someone or you commit a crime against someone based on that bias, then you're no longer in the First Amendment protection field. And so we can prosecute those uh, cases. So for instance, you know, every year uh, in July, there's the San Diego Pride Parade. And there used to be a pretty large gathering of people protesting the LGBT community as they marched through Hillcrest down into Balboa Park. And it seems to be shrinking every year, but they're always there every year, at least pre-COVID, protesting. And they would say things like homosexuality is a sin or uh, you're going to go to hell or something along those lines. Pretty clearly establishing their bias and uh, using hate speech to do it. But they're not threatening violence towards the LGBT community as they're marching past there. So if they said something like, you know, shoot the, shoot the, and pardon my language, but shoot the fags or shoot the lesbians or something like that, that then falls outside the protection of the First Amendment that could be prosecuted. But if they're just expressing their bigoted, homophobic, racist beliefs, they're, they're entitled to do that under the First Amendment. A good distinction. It's a, probably a clear line, you know, that, that, that can be drawn, which is good. And when we're looking at these, just the staggering increase, 164% increase to me is pretty staggering. And are we seeing more cases in San Diego arise as a result of that? Yeah. So we've actually, since 2017, seen a pretty dramatic increase in hate crimes overall. Our numbers almost tripled between 2017 and 2018, and they pretty much have stayed at that level since then. With respect to API hate, we didn't have any anti-API hate crimes reported in the county in 2017, 2018, or 2019. And since the start of the pandemic, we've had three that we have filed, and then another additional one, two actually, uh, that are under investigation right now. So, So we've seen that increase here in San Diego. It's matches what we're seeing statewide and, and nationwide. Yeah, and that's something, uh, you know, correlation maybe is not causation, but that's something that prosecutors call circumstantial evidence. I mean, <laughs> no hate crimes, uh, anti-Asian hate crimes. You said uh, 2017, 2018, 2019, and the start of the pandemic. Yeah. Gosh, that's awful. 
So uh, I wanted to go back to something you said earlier um, about dealing with victims and that how you have this own personal experience that you know how to empathize with victims. How is it, how do you explain to a victim and how does that go when you talk to victims about their case or, or whether or not you can prove that it was a hate crime that we could prove in court? Well, you know, I think one of the things that, that we, we have to take care for with hate crimes victims is to make sure that they're informed from beginning to end because it's such a novel process for them being targeted because of their race or their religion. And so there is a little bit more attention that's needed to them. And so at every step of, of the prosecution, I'm that person who contacts them and, and lets them know what's happening, what the ramifications are if we if we file a case as a hate crime. But one of their biggest concerns is if they cooperate with police or cooperate with the prosecution, uh, that they'll be retaliated against. Most hate crimes occur, you know, on our streets, on our sidewalks, in your neighborhoods. And if you come forward and report a crime, their number one concern is if I walk out my door the next day, how do I know that I'm not going to be targeted again? Uh, not always by the same defendants, but just in general, they just don't feel safe. And so, you know, walking through those issues and helping them overcome that fear that they'll be targeted again, it, it's, it's hard. Uh, we we do uh, work very closely with victim advocates to make sure that if there are services that are needed for them or support, uh, that we provide it. But for the most part, especially right now in this kind of time period where hate is on the rise, most victims right now feel very much like they want to be involved in the process. That wasn't so much true in the beginning, but but right now people seem to to want to stand up to hate, which is an encouraging sign for for me. It really take, does take a lot of bravery, you know, because you're you're putting yourself out there again. And I'm sure people just want to forget about it. And that's, you know, our job as prosecutors, unfortunately, is to bring them back and have them talk about it sometimes over and over again, which is difficult. Yeah. And I, I got to say, um, I feel like every crime you deal with, a victim has a different reaction you know like if they're a victim of a of a residential burglary they don't feel safe in their own house they're a victim of um, a robbery on the street or mugging they don't feel safe on that street but when they're a victim of a hate crime that's got to be a whole different element i mean it's usually pretty apparent that that they just never quite feel comfortable you know i had one of my very first hate crimes cases that went to prelim a lot of media attention and you can i could just tell as soon as the camera showed up that the victims all of a sudden no longer wanted to testify, no longer wanted to be involved in the process. And uh, it's hard, I mean, to, to sit there and then expose yourself to the entire you know, San Diego community and, and talk about what happened to you, you know, and, and to do it in front of the defendant. Uh, right. it, it's, it's particularly difficult for them, but you know, I, I always do draw inspiration from the strength that they have in, in getting through, you know, testifying and, and talking about some pretty horrific things. And, and in all honesty, the language that they have to use mm. as well, uh, they're almost embarrassed to use the language that the defendants use. And so they, they always kind of look around and say, am I allowed to say right. the N word? Am I allowed oh, to wow. say these things? And so it just puts them in a really tough spot because they don't want to use that hateful language, but it, it is part of the crime. Right, so right. It, it, it's tough. Mm, such a good service that you provide your community, Leonard. Thank you for what you do. I was just thinking, you talked about getting out there and we've talked about the symposium and a big part of your job is educating people. Have those reporting tools changed over time? 
Yeah. So, you know, we always encourage people in kind of an emergency situation to call 911. Uh, if it's in a non-emergency situation, we tell them to contact the non-emergency number at the law enforcement agencies. But uh, last year in April, kind of at the start of the rise in API hate, our district attorney came up with the idea of starting a hate crime hotline. And so our office created an online reporting tool. It's the first one in the state, first DA's office in the state to, to have an online reporting tool. So they can uh, create a, a hate crime report uh, directly to us, and it allows them to get a status update if they've already reported to law enforcement, you know, hey, what's going on with my case? Because, you know, you know, from the time of arrest until the time that a, a filing decision is made, sometimes it's two, three days. And they don't know what's going on during that, those three days. And so th their ability to email us so that we can kind of keep tabs and, and reach out to law enforcement to find out if there's any way we can assist, that's been immensely helpful for hate crimes victims. We also have a phone hotline as well that, that victims can call into to get updates on their case. Or if they just kind of see something that they're not sure if it's a hate crime, you know, like mm. if they see kind of a hate incident or they're, they're not quite sure if it's a hate crime or a hate incident, they can report it to us and then we can tell them, we think that's a hate crime. You need to report that to law enforcement. And, and so uh, it's just another tool for them to, to kind of report and then we kind of direct where they should go from there. And for, um, for proving a case, I think it's fascinating that in most of our cases, at least the cases I've prosecuted, you don't have to prove motive. I mean, motive is always relevant, but that seems to be the whole, the core of a hate crimes prosecution, right? Yeah, no, I mean, that's, it's unique in that respect that it's the only set of crimes that does require motive. And it really does allow you to reach back into a person's history to see if they, you know, this was a one-off, like they were drunk and they, you know, wanted to use this hateful language to, to put down a victim, or if it does in fact demonstrate some sort of bias. And so we've had cases where we've looked back 10, 15 years and in police reports, it's documented that they have the same racist beliefs even if the prior cases weren't hate crimes, they still use the same mm -hmm. language. And so pretty easy then at that point to say, no, nah, 10, 15 years worth of using the race, the racist language here, this is a hate crime case. Yeah, wow. What do you do with someone that's like, they were drunk, like you said, or they're you know young, 18, they don't know any better? Well, I, I do look and see how pervasive the hate language is in, during the incident, because if it is, like I described, a one-off, then, then that may not be a hate crime. But if they're consistently putting down the victim, even in a short kind of assault or a battery, then I do think that that is potentially a case that, that should be filed as a hate crime. Now, what do we do with them uh, as far as disposition is concerned? For younger descendants, I think giving them anti-bias education sometimes can be more effective than, you know, having them sit in a jail cell. And in fact, most victims uh, tend to be on board with that if, if the defendants are younger. But if you get older in age and you have a, a pretty documented history of bias against someone because of their race, religion, ethnicity, sexual orientation, you don't deprogram that by sending them to an anti-bias education class. And so for those ones, I'm less likely to refer them to that type of programming. But for a young defendant, you know, no, no risk of violence or no history of violence. I'm more likely to, to say that that's the best way to, to treat the underlying issue. That makes sense. Is there any, is, you know, this is your free public service announcement, Leonard. Do you want to, <laughs> is there anything that you, you know, for somebody who's listening in San Diego or otherwise information that you would like to put out there to the public? Yeah, just report, report, report. And we, we sort of touched on it before. Um, you never kind of know, 
what sort of tragedy you can prevent by reporting something, even if it is just a hate incident. We, we did have a closed case that uh, I can talk about uh, where something like that happened. A, a person reported a, a hate incident and it potentially prevented something really, really tragic from happening. Back in April of 2019, we had the horrific shooting at the Habata Poway. And about a week after the Habata Poway shooting, this defendant made some comment to a coworker where all he said was, you know, John Ernest is a saint. Mm. And it was concerning to his coworkers in particular because the shooting was horrific. Right. And there were, you know, one person died and three other per- people were injured, but also because they knew that he had guns. And, and just so to they, be clear, John Ernest is the suspect that was arrested for that Poway synagogue shooting, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. John Ernest is the, the, the defendant in the Poway shooting. Um, this defendant was a different defendant. And so his coworkers ended up calling police yeah. and they oh. told them what they knew about him. And so law enforcement got a gun violence restraining order. They went to seize all of his guns and he continued to make anti-Semitic comments all throughout his arrest. They seized his electronic devices and ultimately got search warrants to look at his electronic devices. And he had some pretty violent videos depicting violence against not only Jews, but women, people of color. He had threatened women on dating apps. And so he was just, you know, a a little bit away from potentially committing a, a, a mass shooting himself. And what, what made the whole situation worse or potentially worse is that his work was going to fire him. So that would have been a triggering event for him to, to potentially, you know, commit a mass act of violence. And so uh-huh. because of that one little statement that he made about John Ernest being uh, a saint potentially prevented something really, really bad from happening. That's amazing. I did not hear that story. That's, that's it's pretty incredible. And, and it's such a good reminder that we always have to be vigilant. And Leonard, uh, just in case there are people listening to this podcast, where, <laughs> where can you uh, direct them to report? Um, if you didn't say it already, what is the hotline and the, the online tool? Sure. Our, uh, you can find the online tool at sandiegoda.com. The phone number is 619 515 8805, or you can email hatecrimes at sbcda.org. Awesome. Thank that you. sounds great. Well, thank you for your time, Leonard. You do an awesome service for the office and the community and the victims out there. I think you're a tremendous leader, and we thank you for everything that you do. No, oh, thank you for having me. Thanks for awesome. being on this podcast. And you get to take Jorge's quiz now. Oh, yes. <laughs> you want to join us for the quiz? All right. (laughs) (laughs) So every week we end with a quiz where we look at the laws on the books. And I come up basically with three laws. Two are real. One is fake. One, I just totally made it up. Leonard, you are an experienced prosecutor. Lori, you are an experienced prosecutor. There's decades worth of prosecution experience. So let's see if you can pass this. We should not get this wrong. Exactly. (laughs) Should be able to sniff out what is legal and illegal. Here we go. Item number one in Massachusetts, it's illegal to swear at a referee during a sporting event. Item number two in Utah, it's illegal to give someone the middle finger while in public. And item number three in Oregon, it's illegal to throw human waste from a car. Two are real, one is fake. And Leonard, since you are our guest, you get to go first. I'm going to guess is fake. And and it mostly ties to free speech. I think 
that one just makes the, is the strongest one for me for, for potentially infringing on, on people's rights. So I mean, in Oregon, though, I can tell you, I don't think it's number three because I think littering is a crime everywhere. So, so throwing waste out of a car seems even worse than littering. Um, and then number one, I can see that almost being like a 415 type offense here in California. So I just think two is probably, probably it. But it's Utah too, so who knows? <laughs> and, and for anyone that doesn't know, 415 uh, penal code in California, it's disturbing the peace. Um, all right, so I like your thought process. You think it's number two. Lori, what do you think? I think it's spot on. I don't, I think giving the middle finger, even, even in Utah, is, is protected free speech. Um, even in Utah. Even in Utah. And, you know, I know Massachusetts takes their sporting events very seriously. I've been to Boston. So I imagine you can't swear at a referee. And the, the waste in, from a car in Oregon just sounds, sounds like something Oregon would put on the book. So that's my analysis. <laughs> All right. I like your analysis. So let's just go in order of number one in Massachusetts. It's illegal to swear at a referee during a sporting event. All of you think this one is on the books and this one is on the books. You guys are right. Massachusetts general law chapter 272 section 36a and it says whoever having arrived at the age of 16 years directs any profane obscene or impure language or slanderous statement at a participant or an official in a sporting event shall be punished by a fine of not more than 50 dollars oh. it might be worth 50 dollars <laughs> depending on the on the referee and the game i guess uh so that one is on the books now that could have been a, a free speech thing, right? First Amendment, but maybe regulate time and place. Time, place and matter. Yep. Time, place and matter. See, <laughs> we're going back. We're going back to 15 years back in law school. Uh, okay, so you all agree, number two in Utah, that this one is the fake. In Utah, it's illegal to give someone the middle finger in public. You all think this one is fake, and this one is the fake. You guys sniffed it out. Congratulations. And I picked Utah because there are some things out there that <laughs> in Utah that it kind of could never be true. Know. That's right. But in Oregon, it is illegal to throw human waste from a car. And it's not just littering. It's specifically prescribed in Oregon Revised Statute 811-172A. Person commits the offense of improperly disposing of human waste. If the person is operating or riding in a motor vehicle and the person throws, puts, or otherwise leaves a container of urine or other human waste on the on the highway. So it's a class A misdemeanor. We don't have classes like that really in California, but um, if you go to Oregon, know the rules of the don't road. Don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Congratulations, you guys. You you totally sniffed it out. Thanks, Jorge. Appreciate it. Good job, Leonard. <laughs> Good job, Leonard. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Leonard, for your time and joining us. Uh, this has been great. And I'm Jorge Del Portillo. Lori Hoff and Leonard Trin. We, we really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. All right, guys. Well, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on the Prime News Insider Podcast. expressed on this podcast are solely of the speakers and do not reflect the views of the Deputy DA's Association nor the District Attorney. 
questions and comments can be submitted through our website at sddaa.net. Remember to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at San Diego DDAs. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.